Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello everyone and welcome back to Curiosity Killed the Rat Season 3. We're the beginning of the, our third year in a row doing this. Hot diggity damn Kate, we've done oh, all right. We've I done cannot all right. believe it, mate. Like how are we still doing this? I am proud of our commitment mm -hmm. to this. Honestly, Anyone who this has been with us since the beginning, thank you for sticking with us. We hope to deliver another Truly. awesome season of content for you. And if this is yes. the first time you've listened to us, hello, welcome. My name is Matt. I am a science enthusiast. I'm recording from lands uh, whose traditional custodians are the Noongar people. I like to pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. And I will slide it on over to you, my brilliant, intriguing... Uh, oh, um, Matt's um, bought a thesaurus um, since last see. season. Uh, <laughs> Kate, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Why are you here? Hello. Yes, I I too am, I too am present. Um welcome to you know old time listeners and first time listeners to the show if you're new here i'm kate the resident scientist of the show i'm a neuroscientist and i along with our awesome guest who i'll introduce in a hot second um are recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people and so welcome to season three starting us off we do have a guest episode to jump right into it and i am so thrilled to be joined by brandon today how's it going good kate i'm glad to be on i'm really excited i i'm excited that you're excited because this is gonna be this is gonna be a fun one in in a weird sort of way um <laughs> but before we launch into what we're talking about who are you and why the fuck have I asked you onto my show? Well, uh, I, I was pestered by you last year, I think, earlier on in the year to be like, hey, be on my podcast. Um, I think that's something we've heard from a few different guests, right, is your uh, persuasion methods, Kate, of just yeah, no, I, I, I have heard relentless this begging. <laughs> anyway, I am in Kate's lab. I'm in the same, same lab doing behavioral neuroscience stuff. Um, Kate does addiction type work, but yes. I do fear type work, which Ooh. is coincidentally the <gasps> topic for today. I oh believe. my gosh. What? It's almost like we got someone who can speak with some credibility on the topic uh, onto some our show. Some credibility. That's very kind. <laughs> Enough credibility. <laughs> awesome. Fear. I'm excited. First of all, I want to start with why fear and why why are you so interested in fear? Why right? am Got I so interested into that in And why anywhere. are you so excited to talk about fear? Does it come from this, like, sadistic desire to no. see other people scared? or? <laughs> no, I don't really take pleasure in seeing other people scared. The, uh, the motivation comes from the opposite. It comes from trying to figure out why people are scared and how we can fix that in people who might have anxiety disorders mm. or PTSD. So yeah, that's I where my motivation comes from. Personally, don't relate. <laughs> I've never felt fear in my life. And I definitely didn't spend the like 10 minutes leading up to recording this episode complaining about how anxious I was about <laughs> recording this episode because it's been a hot second since we recorded an episode. Mm. And I'm terrified that I don't remember how to podcast, but we'll <laughs> I, see how we go. I'm particularly so excited to learn about fear and its physical relation to anxiety and the feeling of nervousness and also the feeling of excitement 
I work at a camp where we get school kids in and we do lots of things like flying foxes and abseiling and rock walls. And the main uh, things that we try to tell the kids when they're feeling really scared is we go, that feeling of nervousness and that fear is the exact same thing as the feeling of excitement and fun. So if you're feeling <laughs> nervous and getting butterflies in your belly, you just need to tell yourself that that's a fun feeling and then you'll start having fun <laughs> and enjoying yourself. So I want to know how much of what we're actually telling the kids is true and how much is just trying to convince them to jump off a tower. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think it's a good way to convince uh, kids to, to do things that they might be unwilling to do and channeling their channeling their nervousness into excitement but they are things, actually things that they would be unwilling to do that would be beneficial to them i would just oh, like absolutely. to add that caveat and it's we also are not completely safe no, yes, of course <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to get them to push their comfort zone and their boundaries <laughs> oh, we're not forcing yes. them to do it not in a or manipulate no, of course not of just course, i not. really felt the need to no, <laughs> I call, appreciate call, that. Um, definitely good call defend um, my line of work <laughs> yeah, but yes, they are very similar kinds of feelings, um, excitement and mm. nervousness, and they're all kind of related to each other. And the the kind of gray areas where some blur into one another. It's not mm. black and white. Um, so yeah, I'll be interested in talking about things like that today. Mm. Mm. Do you have somewhere that you want to start us off? Um, well, I kind of wanted to ask you both. Mm-hmm. A question mm-hmm. um, to start it off, and that was, why do you think we're scared of things? What What's the point? Survival, right? Evolution. Yeah, we, we don't yeah, want to die usually. Yeah, that is kind of the main reason. So, millions and millions of years ago, some organisms were trying to fight for survival, and some of them didn't have any mechanisms that would help them survive, and mm. some might have developed different ways to help them survive. And they would live on, and the others that didn't have those mechanisms would die out. Mm. And so that's classic evolution, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and so some of these responses are the things that we feel today whenever we get really scared. So what's what are those typical physical feelings that we feel usually? Oh, the like... Tightness the, the, in the chest the, and... Yeah. Uh, I just realized I'm doing these like <laughs> gestures with my hands to try articulate the physiological <laughs> sensation in my body. And it is I, our third I, year I doing this. Yes, this I will remind medium. you again. Yes, Kate, it is an audio <laughs> yeah, it's medium. It's an audio medium. I, I need cannot, constant uh, reminding every episode. Gesticulate um, effectively. I, I'm a very hand usy person. Gosh, why? <laughs> and a good word speaker too. Yes. Tightness of chest. Tightness That's of a chest. very and the, the fluttering of the heart, the mm-hmm. you know, increased heart rate sort of. Yeah. I find my digestive system and yeah. like my appetite yeah. just goes. I cannot eat. I feel nauseous. Oh, I, I have mm. a similar digestive response, but in the sense I need to take a shit really bad when I get nauseous, <laughs> always. And it's always like a really gross runny shit as well. I'm so sorry. That's really gross content, <laughs> but that's that's the truth. If I get really anxious, I, I get the runs. And it's always really bad because usually if I'm anxious, I'm in a situation where it's like the worst time to go and take a poop, right? And shit yourself. <laughs> Right? It's like a really inappropriate time, yeah. It's oh. yeah. yeah. Like you're about to, you know, go give an important public presentation. Yeah. Or it used to happen when, you know, I did sports more before a race or something. I'd uh, suddenly really need yes. to go and poop. And it's like, no, I'm at the starting line right now. This is no, not this the is time. It's yeah. not it's not gonna like propel you forward. Like that. No, no not, not that explosive, no. unfortunately. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it would d- deter the competitors around you that could give you an yeah, advantage. Yeah, maybe that is an advantage. Ways, right? I don't know how that's evolutionarily. Psychological or 
biological like... warfare at that point. I don't know. I feel like the social stigma would be Still far less beneficial upon. than the social credit gain from winning an, a race. Winning, you it like it's hardly that. an honorable yeah. victory, I feel. Yeah, like you, like you win the race, but then no at one talks cost? to you afterwards. So. It's like winning the battle, but losing the war. Exactly. Oh, yes. <laughs> Big time. So anyway, these... Maybe not so much that response. Uh, a lot of the physiological responses are advantageous to our survival. So okay. things, what happens, other than the uh, pooing your pants thing, is uh, we have more energy to like run away from a situation. Our heart beats faster, so it can mm. circulate more blood around and mm, circulate get more the oxygen. blood to the muscles. Yeah, so exactly. That they can do their thing. Exactly, and so organisms that had that um, trait were able to survive a lot better and avoid their avoid being eaten, basically, um, which was a trait that evolved over time. Mm. And it just so happened to get to humans. And now we have all these traits that allow us to conquer harmful, fearful situations. But sometimes it can go wrong. And that's kind of what I'm interested in. Yeah, I was going to say, because, like, definitely one of the physiological sensations is, like, you know, the tightness of chest, the, like, feeling. I don't know, I feel like if I'm in that very heightened panic that no matter how much oxygen I try breathe, it's not enough. Like my lungs feel like they just don't exist and that I can't breathe. And I just, I'm like, well, that is definitely not yeah, advantageous in, in the sense that, you know, similarly to <laughs> Matt, <and his> <laughs> shits. but it's like, is that as a result of like the fear or anxiety or whatever crossing a threshold a point where it's like no longer helpful and it crosses it's like your ODing on adrenaline. To... Yeah. Yeah. So there's actually this thing that I'm really interested in studying and, and that's kind of, the, the term is called threat imminence. So it's kind of a continuum of how scary things are basically that we perceive. So everyone has like their different, uh, different scales of being scared of certain things. Baseline. Right? Of... Yeah. So yeah, like... like I can't even watch parodies of horror movies. <laughs> like Shaun of the Dead mm. uh, made me scared. Um, <laughs> which, you know, my baseline's very low. Yeah. So other people, you know, can watch like really gory and Actually, like, like Dawn of the Dead things. and thrive. <laughs> and just be like, yeah, this is my jam. Yeah. But like some people can't do that. So hard, hard relate. In going back to like the evolutionary thing, um, it, it kind of comes from predators being really close and you're, when a predator is really close, you engage in all these like really uncoordinated, just get out of there. Mm. I'm not even thinking about anything right now. Whereas if you see a predator from a distance, the response is usually more cautious and you might have different physiological responses and it okay. might be less intense. Well, so like, so, you know, you always hear like fight or flight, yeah. but it's actually like, fight, flight, or freeze, yeah. realistically. Yeah, and it's not, like, hard and fast, fight, like, like mm. fight, flight, freeze. It's on a continuum. Like, there's there's a choice yeah. being made where you're kind of relying on your automatic systems to get out of there, or if it's, like, less of a threat but still kind of scary, you're using different parts of your brain which are thinking a little bit more about the situation, mm. thinking, hey, do I have the resources to get out of here? Do I need to hide? Yeah, is freezing the best response yeah. at this point? Or is it so dangerous that I need to get the heck out of Dodge? Yeah. Or like, holy shit, there's no way out of here. I need to like really ramp up and fight this motherfucker. Yeah, and so we have different responses depending on our perception of what's scary around mm. us. And so it just so happens that when people have these anxiety disorders or... Mm 
sometimes not even an anxiety disorder, but if they have a heightened response to something that's scary to them, mm. um, that can be an explanation on why people have fears of things that are generally innocuous to some people, mm. but to them it might be the scariest thing in the world. So it's all about their perception of how threatening um, something is. And someone with an anxiety disorder will have a heightened perception of what threat is actually around. Yeah, okay. What's the difference in what actually happens in the body to after you perceive the difference of threats? Like, because, you know, predator right in front of you, you run like fuck. Predator far away, you still have some cognitive ability to plan something a bit more strategic. So is it like with one, you just get a full dose of adrenaline, one, you get less adrenaline or a different chemical? Is there something physically different that's going on there to invoke these different types of responses depending on the threat level? Yeah, so there's a lot of research going on um, to do with different responses in the brain. Um, to do with the different responses that happen in perception to threat. So as I mentioned before, um, if you're not in a directly threatening situation, but you're kind of appraising it, you're mm. using parts of the brain that monkeys and humans have evolved to be quite big, which is our front, our cortex, mm. um, stuff that... The wibbly wobbly bits. The, you know, the big, <laughs> big curly wibbly wobbly bits yeah. uh, that, that, thinky, uh, thinky that other animals don't have right mm. um so we're using more of those circuits and they're interacting with the fear circuits to create a kind of an overall response like what is the most appropriate interestingly when the the threat comes near it's like your cortex like shuts off it's like mm. everything just goes to lizard brain kind of lizard brainy mm. type area and it's just like run yeah, run run it's all reflex like, like kind, re of. kind of reflect as reflexive as a fear response could be mm. um so it really is to do with kind of your brain response um and you would probably have a heightened um release of adrenaline um in a more threatening situation so you could get the hell out of there yeah um so and again that would all be kind of mediated by different processes in the brain um, so the brain is very important in regulating how important it is to get the hell out of there or to just kind of evaluate it and be like, mm, it's scary, but I think I can handle it or use different strategies to like deal with the fear. Yeah. So yes, the brain in a little part called the hypothalamus um, is very important in dealing with fear. And that's what I'm interested okay. in. Okay. So it's more than... I assume more than just adrenaline, adrenaline being a big part of it, but there are a lot more complexities and nuances that go on depending on where the fear is sitting on the continuum. Yeah, absolutely. You have different, different chemicals in the brain other mm. than adrenaline that mediate stress and fear responses. Like you might've heard serotonin mm -hmm. as cortisol. one. Cortisol is a main yeah. stress, um, stress hormone that's released in stressful situations. And some people are more sensitive to their release. Um, some people release more in response to different mm. situations. So um, there's a lot more than just, you know, adrenaline. Um, but there are usually some key players in that um, stress pathway, like the hypothalamus that I, I mentioned. There's also a pituitary gland. Mm. Um, and if you look on any diagram, and this is where I'll actually be crude, it looks like mm -hmm. a pair of balls. Oh, it does. <laughs> oh, like completely. Absolutely. So I call nice. them your brain balls. It's a ball sack. Like, pretty Excellent. much. And it releases hormones. It's, so it it like releases makes, hormones. It makes sense, it's right? It's literally That's Yeah, beautiful. it's your brain, brain balls. Sack. Yeah, like look, go. <laughs> go listen, Google. Listen, listen, listen at home. Go Google. 
I can words. Pituitary gland. Google pituitary, pituitary gland. Glands. You can't tell me they do not look like a pair of balls. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm just going to quickly do a cheeky Google right now just because <laughs> I want to confirm what you two are saying. Not that I don't trust you, but I just I just want to look at the brain balls. <laughs> I mean, I've never, I've never said that in a, uh, you know, academic we're talk. happy to provide this well, medium I mean, for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it might resonate a little bit. I so. honestly no, think <laughs> some mild crudity and something that's like mildly offensive but not super offensive is a far better learning device because people mm, remember soap it. Sperm. People, soap sperm. People pe- remember, remember soap sperm. when we did an episode on soap and how that works. I yeah. was talking about the, you know, the lipids and mm-hmm. how they've got the tail, oh, the, the head the and the tail. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, they're like little sperm. That's true. Um, and it's it's just a, a visual that a lot of people have been, and then my grandma who oh, no. listened to the <laughs> podcast um, was like, why didn't you say tadpoles? <laughs> I was like, because it's, it's not, not as, as funny. Not as, yeah, exactly. We People use the same kind of tadpoles. technique when we do bushwalking at work to tell kids the difference between a Jarrah tree and a Mary tree. Basically, the difference mm. is a Mary tree has really leathery bark like crocodile skin. The Jarrah tree has smooth mm. bark. And the other difference is one has little gum nuts and one has really big honky nuts. So we tell them mm. a rhyme to remember is never marry a crocodile with big nuts because the Mary tree has <laughs> crocodile skin and big nuts. And they always giggle because we say nuts and the teachers always give us yeah. a sour look. But then for the rest of camp, kids are saying that and they will always forever remember, remember how to tell the switch. difference between those two trees because we said a slightly funny word to them. So I am a huge advocate for crudity as a learning device. It's yeah. so well, I remember when I was learning music back in like primary school and you know how it's like all cows eat grass, yeah. like bass clef. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. People say my my piano teacher was like, no, all cows eat garbage, mm. and that's always stuck in my head because it's funny, even though it makes no sense. But it's funny, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. as like an eight year old, I was like, cows don't eat like garbage. <laughs> that's but that's funny. It's good. It's and I think yeah. adults that, as that... well. We can't pretend to be above crudity. Oh, we find exactly. joy in that, you know. Oh, you can't be can't be all serious scientists all the time. Pituitary um, so, yeah. so totally looks like a ball sack. It's funny. Yes, uh, yeah. totally, <laughs> totally, definitely. I uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so that that conversation that just then actually does relate to fear, and that we learn things that are like emotionally relevant to us, or mm. they invoke like a sense of emotion in us, and that's what fearful events are, right? So, mm. like, say someone. Someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, mm-hmm. one event can make them remember that one thing for the rest of their life. Yeah. And I don't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Not a very emotionally, you Same. know, uh, unless the breakfast relevant. was, you know, super amazing. Yeah. Or whatever. Mm. But I mean, like I you might remember one really damn good breakfast that one time, but you oh, don't yeah, remember every exactly. single breakfast you have. Yeah. Unless that breakfast had a piece of glass in it and you bit in and it cut your mouth open, mm. you would probably remember that. Yeah, exactly. Because that now is an emotional... Exactly. Yeah. And there's a problem um, in, in, in disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder where the interaction between learning systems and how we normally learn about different events in our life mm-hmm. interact with emotional systems. And it creates this really, really strong memory. And for some people it can be too strong and they just replay the events over and over Mm. so that when they see something that's even remotely similar to the, let's say they were in a war, they hear a car door slam or something. Mm. If they hear something that's like slightly the same, it triggers that memory because Mm. anything that is slightly sounding like a gunshot 
will trigger this anxiety fear response. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that makes perfect sense yeah. when it, you know, when you keep in mind that it's all to do with survival and especially in life or death scenarios, your brain has taken note that this is in fact a life or death scenario. We yeah. need to be much more aware of these types of exactly. threats. If you're in a war zone um, for a long time, you'd learn that gunshot bad keep head down. Yeah. Otherwise, I yeah. feel exactly. like you probably don't even need to be there for that long to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the problem is, is that it generalizes when they come back home, mm. even though they full well know that they're in a situation where, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the war zone. Mm. There's still that issue of learning and uh, it triggers an automatic response of fear, even though they full well know mm. nothing's going to happen. Mm. And so that's the stuff that I'm interested in. Why do we have these maladaptive fear responses um, uh, to stimuli that shouldn't really elicit fear. Um, and a lot of it is just normal fear responses to the extreme, basically. Mm. And that's what post-traumatic stress disorder is and what anxiety disorders are. Mm. What I was explaining before where you've just got heightened anxiety over something that is perceived by another person to be really kind of innocuous, mm. you've just got that heightened response in someone and it's just all to do with learning and that's that interaction mm. with fear. Um, so what I try to do in my research is figure out um, how exactly we can tame down these responses um, and hopefully create better treatments for mm. people with those disorders. I'm curious if, you know, how much of, you know, anxiety disorders are as a result of, you know, environmental conditions that have resulted in, you know, you learning that certain things are scary when someone else perhaps didn't at a childhood age get exposed to a loud banging door or, mm. a, I don't know, something that seemed scary at the time. And how much is you being born with some disposition, genetic predisposition to developing these kinds of things. Yeah. Is that I, something we know or are we I still think, trying to... I think it's, uh, I mean, a pretty common theme in most um, psychiatric disease is, you know, the nature versus nurture debate, mm. you know. There's always going to be some hereditary component to it, but some people without any family history can all of a sudden mm. develop mm. some psychiatric disease. Um, there's actually a lot of research going into a field called um, epigenetics, mm, yes. um, which we may have to explain to listeners. Is that I feel we've done yeah. a lot. Have we yeah. done a bit have on? You've done epigenetics. I feel like it's worth recapping because I, for one, that sure. even though it rings a bell, I don't remember fucking mm. anything. Um, that's okay. Mm. So, for so my basically, sake. <laughs> that's all good. So basically, um, we have DNA. Inside mm -hmm. all of us, that's our genetic code, right? Mm -hmm. But there's all these different proteins that wrap around it in each cell, right? Yeah. And so sometimes um, these genes can be wrapped around with a protein so hard that they can't be expressed. Mm, and they don't turn on. They don't turn on, basically. Okay. So there could be... Protein straitjacket. <laughs> pretty much. So okay. there can be environmental events that happen throughout a lifetime. A common one is for depression... Um, a, a depression can be triggered actually no and schizophrenia can be triggered um, through cannabis use yeah and that creates an epigenetic change where certain proteins unravel to reveal a certain gene and when that gene is expressed they're more susceptible to develop schizophrenia yeah or depression okay so epigenetics is like the environmental influences mm. 
on genetics. It's like the because, mix of Yeah, because you're born with your DNA, and so people are often under the misconception that if something is driven by your genes, then it's something that you were born with. Yeah. Mm. But that's absolutely not the case um, because well, which genes case, are able to be expressed or not can be changed But those by the genes are still ones you're all born with, though, right? You're, you're, is it that you're mm. born with, you know, your set genes, whatever they are, some of them mm. are expressed, but some of them aren't. And then what can change yeah. over time is which ones are expressed, but you can't yeah. get new genes, you, right? No, no, okay. you can't. But you, but you, it's also very difficult to predict how epigenetic mechanisms will influence turning on and turning off of genes throughout your lifetime because it's dependent on the environment. Mm. Okay. And so, yeah. so many things are, or I should say very few things are governed by any one single gene, right? Yeah. There are so few things that it's like, oh, here is the one gene that controls mm. yeah. this. Most of it is a combination of yeah. genes, some which make you more susceptible to certain things, some which make you less susceptible. And it's that combination of genes mm. that ultimately leads to whatever comes out of it. And if you change which of that combination are turned on and turned off, it can change the overall effect. Yeah, quite. exactly. Profoundly. Yeah. And so some people might over time be turning on genes that they don't know that are making them more susceptible to develop an anxiety disorder yeah. and be ma ma making them more scared of things that they might not have been in the past. Mm. Um, but again, it can be, it can, it can be different for everyone. And I think if it were that straightforward, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we would, would be out of a job. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Yes. Brains, man. Brains. Heckin' complex. So complicated. We mm -hmm. love it. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to touch on, again, the relation between fear and excitement. Because um, I am curious about that. And, like, the idea of an adrenaline junkie. Because fear, as we said, isn't just adrenaline. And it's multiple things, multiple chemicals. Um, however... If you do something scary and it gives you a big release of adrenaline, what's the difference between you standing at the top of a really big tower and shitting yourself or when you're down at the bottom completed doing whatever fun thing you're doing and you're giggling and smiling and laughing and feeling an immense rush? And I wouldn't call that feeling fear. What 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 goes well, on in the brain the between there and there? that you did there. the scary thing and it didn't kill you, right? Like that's what the post... This is tr yeah. Activity. This is true, but there's also that you know feeling of wanting to do it again, yeah. and that's where I feel like mm. both of our research topics it, like intersect mm. quite well. Mm. And the reason why I'm I'm studying fear in an addiction lab, and mm. um, everyone else is studying addiction, quite mm. obviously, since you know mm. that's the name of our lab. But yeah. I'm the only one studying fear, and I feel like sometimes it's a bit lost on why that's the case. Yeah. But I think this is a perfect example of why. Um, it's relevant to addiction mm. um, and it's just that um, fear and addiction are really closely intertwined in this case where you've got um, this stress response that also happens in um, addiction and once that occurs, um, either a reward pathway is activated, mm. which is when after you've done it, you get that dopamine hit um, you get that adrenaline rush. Everything was cool. Oh my God, this is so addictive. Um, but you still have that stress response beforehand. Mm. And then, um, uh, it's, it's all about like learning like that. This experience was, you know, such a rush. And so you have this, um, 
kind of combination of learning that it was really cool with, mm. um, you know, this stress response, but the learning that it was really cool bit like overrides the stress response so that you want to do it again. Yeah. Okay. And for some people, and so that's when you get like this hijacking of the reward system, which is what Kate knows a lot mm. more about than mm. I do. Whereas some people that doesn't happen and it, it stays with just the purely learning that was terrifying. I don't want to do it again. Yeah. Um, so there can be this kind of link between being purely scared and not wanting to do it again or being scared, but oh my God, that was such a rush. And you get this activation of different brain circuits that might not be activated in someone that was like, fuck no, I'm not doing that ever again. Mm. Right. Because I, I, I feel it's definitely that like the, the after effect of like, oh, this thing that I was convinced was a threat to my survival, aka mm. makes me anxious, yeah. in fact did not pose a threat to my survival. Mm. And so you get that massive like, relief oh my gosh I'm still alive and mm. I didn't expect to be and like mm. that's gonna set off that you know reward pathway because essentially how the reward pathway functions mm. and how it links to learning is it serves to make you go huh this particular set of circumstances whether it be oh this group of people I like to do drugs with this bar I like to drink at or you know this mm. event that caused me to feel an overwhelming sense of relief mm. I should take note of all of these circumstances so I can recreate this feeling of reward or relief. Exactly. Yeah. So feeling that thing at the start of like when you're to on top of a big mountain about to go down, that person might have already created an association of this fear response that I'm feeling doesn't lead to anything bad. It's mm. exciting for me. And so that's what they've learned. So yeah. that's the difference between... Um, you know, being purely scared of something and having it associated with reward. Whereas the kids that you might be trying to influence, they haven't mm. had that experience yeah. of, you know, actually having the other end and, and being okay. So yeah. the advice you're giving them might not be resonating with them as much the mm. first time. <laughs> I always find that um, how they are at, you know, the start of a flying fox before I throw them off is very different to how they are if I'm catching them on the flying fox or <laughs> if I'm still at the start and they come back around for their second go, their mm. demeanor totally changes. And that's what I try to convince them is the idea that their fear will undergo a transmutation over the cross of the zip line. <laughs> and by the end, all of the nervousness they're having, they're just going to be smiling and laughing and giggling and they're going to want to come back up for more. But yeah, I do find that the more times you do it over and over again, it eventually starts to lose that fun and eventually just becomes boring because the fear yeah, because aspect it's is no what makes it fun. Giving you, know? you relief because yeah. you know you know so ingrained like in your brain that this is no longer a threatening activity, that it's no longer producing relief. And I think that's where the yeah. addiction side of it comes into it for adrenaline junkies and stuff, is that they find as they get more and more comfortable with extreme things that are safe, oh, it's, stuff it's is no longer tolerance. giving them that yeah. response. They seek out more so and more dangerous more and dangerous and, and extreme things yeah. to so, provide yeah. that response. It absolutely yeah. makes perfect sense. So is that yeah, an that really addiction to fear or is that an addiction to just the feeling of relief? I would say it's an addiction to relief. Mm. Um, Cause it's, but it requires like for relief as a feeling or, mm. you know, to be created, it requires, it requires the context of fear and danger. The context of threat mm. yeah. to your survival mm. in order for it, yeah. Yeah, and that can be rewarding to them. And, um, yeah, I think it, it goes down to a, 
a, a mechanism called um, it's called prediction error. So, going to try and explain this as uh, simply as I can. But basically, if someone does something for the first time, they have all this prediction error, which is I don't actually know what's going to happen, and then it happens, and now they've learnt what the actual outcome is. So their mm. prediction was different to the actual outcome. They might have been really scared the They first might have time. predicted that the flying fox was going to snap halfway down and they were going to fall to their death and that was going to be that. Exactly. Yeah. And But it was okay. And so the perceived difference between what actually happened and what they thought was going to happen, the bigger that is, the more fear that is created. Mm. And so basically over time, their prediction becomes more accurate to what actually happens yeah and so they know what's going to happen so it doesn't elicit as much fear yeah so when adrenaline junkies do something a whole bunch of times mm. that prediction error is now you know non-existent so yeah. they want to try something else to push the envelope so that they can get that little bit of dopamine so that they can feel that same feel that rush, rush again that yeah before. exactly yeah right so it, it is very intertwined with learning and um, how we perceive things. But I want to I wanna steer us mm. back to the idea of anxiety disorders, yes. right? And so, like, because fear is a normal thing. We all feel fear. Fear is an advantageous thing to feel, right? Like, I am scared at the idea of riding my motorcycle without a helmet on. Mm. That's probably a good... Reasonable, rational, That's a good fear. supportive <laughs> fear for me to have, right? But I also get scared in like crowded places or, you know, mm. before giving big important presentations, which is not very mm. good when you're a science communicator, <laughs> I must say, um, you know, before going to some social events, mm. like there, there are situations where I certainly feel that physiological anxiety and, you know, it's all good to sort of tell myself and try reframe it psychologically mm. as excitement, but fundamentally it's been driven by fear mm. <laughs> but at what point does it become quote unquote disordered mm -hmm. and at what point is it a healthy anxiety how do i fix you know? me <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't have the answers i'm not a clinician Damn. okay well it's worth a shot <laughs> but um yeah so basically as i mentioned earlier that the anxiety disorders and what is termed as you know, maladaptive anxiety mm. um, is really just because of an exaggerated response to something, to a threat. Mm. So personally, I have an anxiety disorder, um, which kind of sparked my interest in, in this type of research. But personal experience, it, it's the, the anxiety itself is way disproportionate to an objective reality that you're living mm. in. So again, it comes down to that threat perception continuum that I was talking about. What happens in people with anxiety disorders is that their perception of a certain thing, or it might just be a whole bunch of things in general. It could be social situations mm. with people with social anxiety disorder. Um, that perception of threat is way high. And, and there's some learning going on in, in the brain that has reinforced a whole bunch of times in your head that this is scary, mm. right? And so what we're trying to figure out is how can we kind of undo these really strong associations and, like, can we? Can we do this, like, pharmacologically? Can we do this with a drug? 
can we do this through different like psychological techniques? Mm. Um, so, um, yes, it is a lot to do with learning. And I've forgotten the original question. <laughs> <laughs> it was how can you uh, fix Kate? It was how do you um, fix do you? me? Um, <laughs> Well, was it at what point does that level anxiety oh, become right. a disorder as opposed to being mm, just like yeah, a, right. a regular old stress a response? Regular... Because yeah, everyone so gets think... stressed, right? Even if you don't have an yeah. anxiety disorder. Um, exactly. Yeah. I think um, I think that's probably one for the psychologist more, but yeah. it is, I think the way they, they term it is, is, is if it is impacting your everyday Negatively life. Impacting Negatively your impacting your life, yeah. life in a way that, you know, is... Um, I guess, quote unquote, abnormal. Causing um, disorder, one could say. Yeah, causing, yeah, pretty much. Um, so it, it is dependent yeah. on the individual mm. um, in, in what, uh, like how extreme that anxiety is to them and if it is considered um, a disorder or not. Um, it's a bit of a, there's no hard and fast like rule, like this is a disorder because you're, you're feeling X amount of anxiety. Like, yeah. Um, it really is up to the individual to be like, hey, this is affecting my life in mm. a negative way, therefore mm. it is deemed a disorder. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a kind of a neuro neurobiological definition, definition of that. Yeah, I wasn't um, sure. Yeah, I think it's purely it's psychological. It's more of a psychological thing. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's that's the complicated thing with with stuff like this, like what we study, and, you know, the, just the concept of fear full mm. stop, right, is that you can define fear in a neuroscientific way by being like oh when these certain circuits are activated that result in these certain behaviors that we know we can associate with like what we would expect an animal to do in a scary situation and we can test this by jabbing them with substances that we know is going to increase their internal stress and mm -hmm. or putting them you know exposing them to mm -hmm. like the urine of a predator or stuff that we know is going to elicit a stress response or a fear response look at their behavior and look at the brain activity and be like that is what fear looks like mm -hmm. and that's how we would define it but then when you try to translate that into humans there's the whole other aspect of the conscious experience of fear versus dread versus panic mm -hmm. versus anxiety and the nuanced differences between those and how we would emotionally or psychologically define these terms and the intersection between that, you know, I think I find that with my, you know, addiction research is, is a big thing to consider the whole, you know, what we do really has a lot of advantages because it, it allows us to really control the environments in which we are studying these things and look at things on a molecular level, which is mind-blowingly wild and cool and exciting. But these are just kind of our best recreations of the human condition because you can't ask a rat why or like how it's feeling. Like, mm. are, are you scared? <laughs> right. We can only measure certain types of behaviors. Mm. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, like yeah. some of the ways that we study yeah, that so, or you study that. Yeah, I yeah. Because yeah, I feel like I'm, human testing of fear would breach some ethical guidelines, right? Well, it, it actually happens, but to okay. a very uh, tame degree. Yeah. Um, the, the typical uh, procedure of testing fear um, and how we learn about fear is um, a modification of Pavlov's dog. Now, I don't know if mm. you would have heard about Pavlov and his salivating dog. I'm, I'm aware um, of Pavlov, but yeah, maybe yeah, do a little... On, give, uh, us, give us your best All right, I'll do, I'll do my 
Go on. My best. I always love a life explanation. <laughs> um, basically, old mate Pavi, he was scientist who was trying to figure out. I don't know what he was researching initially. I think the discovery he was, was actually an accident. doing like physiology experiments. Yeah. he wasn't a psychologist. Or, no, not like, at, all. at all. Point is, he was doing something, and he would ring a bell every time he fed a dog. And then eventually he just started ringing the bell without feeding the dog. And he found that whenever he rang the bell, the dog started salivating as if it was like, okay, I'm about to eat because the dog had developed a, a an association of the bell with food. And I believe that's known as a Pavlovian response when you create an association oh. with two different things. Uh, yeah, that aren't necessarily related, but you've created a correlation. Thank you for coming to my Absolutely. TED Talk. Absolutely. Absolutely oh, nailed it. I'm that was so perfect. proud of you. Thank man. you. Excellent. Thank you. I try. <laughs> uh, that was perfect. So basically, fear conditioning is the term we use in the lab to test fear. And it's basically a modification of that where we play, instead of a bell, we actually just play like a beep. weird beep sound. Okay. And the beep is immediately followed by a little, little zap on mm. the uh, mice's little feet. Little foot shock. Mm. Little foot shock. So eventually that's re that, that repeats a few times and eventually they learn when they hear that sound, they're like, oh shit. Beep equals ah! The shock is coming. Yeah, right? okay. So that's basically how we measure fear. Um, well, I just realized I think I have a response like that fear. to the beep test from fucking <laughs> high school. I heard beep, enough, my mind went still... to beep and I just felt a little bit anxious at the idea of yeah, running no. laps. That's, that's totally that's fair. And that, folks, is fear conditioning <laughs> illustrated in the flesh. Who needs analogies when we have real life... Real life, tra real life trace conditioning. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, yes, yeah, so that's basically how we condition fear in, a, in an animal. Mm. And then to measure their fear response is rats and mice have this characteristic response when they are scared and it is freezing. So... As soon as they hear the sound, if they're smart enough, they will freeze immediately to the tone. Mm. And uh, once once the danger is gone, they're like, okay, no sound anymore. We'll, we'll keep moving. So I think that that response evolved over time as they're like little small critters and they, uh, you know, they like to hang near walls. And if they kind of stop... The hope is, is that the predator won't see them. Yeah. Okay. Um, and apparently that was evolutionarily advantageous for them at I one mean, point. I mean, it must have been because <laughs> mice definitely exist on this exactly. planet. Exactly. They, they are sure still here. Thriving. They are still um, here. So that's how we condition them. Um, and then there's a term called fear extinction where it's the opposite. We basically teach them. We basically give them mouse therapy. Uh, it's nice. basically exposing them exposure to exposure therapy. Exposure therapy. It it's is, mouse exposure yeah. therapy. So we play the tone, and they're like, "Oh shit, the shock's coming," but we never give them the shock. They're like, "Okay, you're just tricking it's, me." It's what you're doing with the kids in the flying fox. Yeah, basically. You, you yeah. know, you're showing them that you know what you thought this beef was a threat to your existence, mm. but guess the more what? you do it's it, the real safe. the more you realize totally that it's chill. actually fine. It's fine. Exactly. And that's yeah. what the mouse or rat learns over the session is that we just keep playing the tone and we don't shock it. And eventually the mouse is like, oh, you guys are chill now. So that's how we measure fear extinction. Mm. And before when I was saying, you know, giving the tone and then shocking them, that's how we measure fear conditioning. Mm. Basically, we can inject certain things into their brain, into different mm. parts that we're interested in that we think might alleviate some of these fear conditioning responses or enhance fear extinction, basically make them less scared quicker. 
Mm, um, less exposure required basically for them to stop yeah. freezing and after a lot, the beep. Yeah, and a lot of people have problems when they go into therapy and they're, you know, they're, they're in that exposure mm. type setting. They're like, yeah, this is cool. I've, I've learned that this isn't scary anymore. Mm-hmm. As soon as they get into the real world outside of the clinic, mm. it's a different situation. Because it's, I've learned that in this very specific clinical yeah. scenario, this is a safe thing. Yep. And but then you're back out. I mean... Once again, so which is that's that's what you do, right? Hey, it's about like the yeah. context and the power that plays context. in your response of whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so what we do yeah. in what I do in my studies is that we can create different contexts for the mice by putting different smells in the chamber or different mm. different types of different walls, wallpaper. Different, yeah, give them a bedding, di- exactly. Make them think yeah. like they're in like a hotel in one bit, or and then they're in the park the next one, right? Um, so we can test different things to see if they remember, um, they remember the fear in a certain context better than, um, another context. So Mm. if we extinguish their fear in one context, say the park, Mm. uh, if we put them into another context, how well do they remember that the tone no longer leads to shock? Yeah. And sometimes they're really bad at it. So do they go, oh, the beep is only scary at the park, at the hotel, Mm. it's a safe beep. Or exactly. Yeah. 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 So we can test different compounds that can either help them to, uh, if they go into a new context, be like, Hey, I've already been extinguished. This tone mm. means nothing to me. Yeah, they don't tone care means about the nothing context. Anywhere. Exactly. I am above the tone. So if we can find things that can help humans figure out, Hey, I've been extinguished in this context. Mm. That means it's applicable everywhere. Because it's you know a learning problem. That's really um, interesting then... that the the context only, uh, well not only, but you know you hear the beep in the cage, then you go to the park, you hear the beep, you're still scared. It's interesting that the yeah. beep is the learned response and not the beep plus cage, right? A yeah, person so... goes to war, hears a bang, it's not bang plus wherever I am. That's the scary exactly. thing. It's all bangs are now scary. So even if in therapy you learn bangs aren't scary, bang in park still scary. Like mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. interesting. It's, it is very interesting, and there's a lot of kind of psychological theory studies trying to tease out how context plays a part in in fear learning, and mm. if contexts are directly associated with a stimulus or is it like, does it set the scene? Like mm. if you put someone in a certain context, does the condition stimulus, so mm. the, the tone or the, the bang, beep. does it take on a different meaning or mm. is there some sort of relationship between the two? And it's still not really well known. Um, and I think for different people um, and different stimuli, it can be different within the individual, which mm. makes it even tougher. And so, I mean, I guess that makes sense once again in the context of the example from before of the the PTSD where it's like, mm. oh, it's just the bang that mm. is scary as opposed to people in camouflage, mm. et cetera, mm. et cetera, required, you know, mm. maybe there's an element of if it is such a big threat or big anxiety producing, mm-hmm. you know, trauma, mm. um, then is it more likely that that immediate stimulus, the beep, the bang or whatever, that that bleeds through into yeah. other contexts? Yeah. Whereas if it's just like a mild thing that made you scared, 
you know, the context becomes more important mm. because your brain's not like, your brain's like, okay, I should pay attention to the fact that this is a potentially threatening mm. thing, mm. but it's not like I need to be hypervigilant at all times to make sure that said threatening thing is nowhere near me. Mm. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what I said at the that start continuum. with, with the continuum, mm. right? Like if it's something that is ridiculously scary, mm you're going to have regions of the brain that aren't activated that are important for that real cognition, that real mm. thought, that real appraisal of the situation. You're just going to want to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. So they're not the, – the mouse in – The in, rationality in, part. Yeah, is, is gone. So mm. it, I don't think it matters if you, you know, train them to have like extreme foot shock and which mm. wouldn't pass through ethics. But, yeah. you know. Um, and you Nothing put, that we are doing to these animals exactly. is, is – It's very um, mild. Uh, not approved by yes. a very, very thorough, ethics. a very strict ethics board. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. But anyway, we put like, let's say they have an extreme foot shock and we put them in a different context. There's not going to be any appraisal of the context when they hear the tone. Mm. It's just going to be immediate. Oh no, this is associated with, with mm. big scare, <laughs> big <laughs> right? Pain. Big pain. Big so they're, they're not going to evaluate that. Whereas if it was something that was a bit more mild, then they have the cognitive ability to appraise the situation and be like, hang on, this is a different context. Maybe, Maybe I don't I'm need, okay. uh, you know, they'll still be cautious at the start, but mm. y- you find if you put them in a different context and nothing happens, their fear response drops really quickly mm. yeah, um, okay. because they learn, you know, hey, like, different okay, context, cool. it's actually fine. Chill here. Yeah. So we can put these mice and rats into all these different kind of scenarios, which kind of recapitulate what humans experience in a P- in PTSD or in an anxiety disorder mm. to do with like generalizing fear to different contexts or being able to discriminate fear. Let's say you play a different tone with slightly different sound. Mm. Like it can be like maybe different, different, pitch. Hurt, different pitch. Um, can you distinguish between those two? One is scary. Like one is associated mm. with shock. One is not mm. um, because that can be important with like the gunshot thing. Mm. The gunshot sounds Slightly similar to a, car to a car door, but still different. Yeah. So, you know, can we find compounds to inject into a mouse and rat brain that can help them discriminate between two sounds that one is associated with fear and one is not. Mm. Whereas usually the normal response is be scared of both because better safe than sorry. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I do. Um, trying to figure out different parts of the brain that, um, if you activate them, inactivate them, put certain drugs in them, um, can they alleviate some of these maladaptive responses that occur Mm. in, uh, well, we're trying our best to model that in in an animal. animal. Obviously it's a different story in a human. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to model that as best as we can. And I'm sure Kate has mentioned in um, her addiction research that again, it's just a model. It's not uh, a full recapitulation of the actual condition, but yeah. we're trying our darndest to, <laughs> yeah. to make it as close it's the as first possible. Step exactly. in the journey, the it preclinical. The you know, if we can figure it out, and and lots of stuff. Like there are lots of similarities mm. between rodents and humans, as much as people might not like mm. that fact. Mm. Um, <laughs> and and I just want to mention, especially in the fear circuits, the yeah. the real you know real conserved regions of the yeah, brain. Yeah. If you actually look at the shape of the brain part that I'm looking at and you look at the human one, you can't really tell much of a difference. Yeah, okay. uh, Other than size. (laughs) Um, But then that's relative size Exactly, exactly. So, you know, a lot of the circuits are conserved and have a lot of relevance to Mm. to us. Um, And and can be quite informative as to, like, what the next step in Mm. terms of human research 
is. Mm. I'm just noticing the time and where we're at mm. and was wondering if there was anything else either of you wanted to bring up um, before I drag us all along to our listener question. Uh, I'm happy if Matt has any questions for me. That Still don't know why I shit myself about. when I'm scared. I don't have that answer. Because it's really a common sorry. thing, right? Scared me shitless, scared yeah, the shit yeah, yeah. out of me. Mm. Like, but it, usually, it, usually the response is your digestive system shuts down, shuts down because, because it's not necessary. Anymore. Yeah, because essentially, right, we've got two different arms of our what's called our autonomic nervous system, so the bit that just does the automatic thing Mm. you've got your sympathetic which is that fight flight freeze kind Mm. of response and your parasympathetic which the you know we say rest and digest digest. because you know we love rhymes to help us remember things in science um and the thing is you know you can only they're they're always kind of in flux in balance with each other Mm. um when there's more of one there's less of the other so forth and you you know you like like we like to exist a nice kind of equilibrium midpoint but in in a fear situation that sympathetic nervous system is going to ramp right up direct blood you know to our muscles as we're saying increase your heart rate which means you're going to get less activity in your rest and digest which means your digestive system is getting less blood and less activation maybe it's because of that um, maybe the body's like get this shit out of me i got other stuff to worry about you know yeah it could be like a dump it so that we don't have to worry about i don't want it to be in the intestines it. absorbing nutrients i just want it out of me so it like yeah, fast well, tracks exactly, the digestive you, process so you can yeah, deal with other stuff you don't have to absorb things and whatever it just you know but it should be noted this is just hypothesizing this is conjecture i'm not basing this on anything i think it's a a reasonable no i think Um, it's perfectly reasonable mm. um you know what i'm gonna real quickly why do you shit yourself when scared yeah do a cheeky i reckon it is that i reckon it is that it's not like, you I know, did, dropping... It makes ex- you lighter. I, I wouldn't say it's a dropping um, extra mass. Your power that would to weight ne- ratio. Negligible. It would be more like, a, I don't want my intestines to do work right now, so get it out of me. Or the sphincter cleansing, clenching is too much work. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need energy elsewhere yeah. rather than my sphincter. <laughs> During heightened anxiety, the amount of... Of course, it's serotonin related. Yes. <laughs> um, the amount of serotonin increases in your gut can cause spasms to happen throughout your entire colon. These spasms are enough to produce unexpected bowel movements. Anxiety poop may also be linked to your nervous system. That is a great sentence. (laughs) (laughs) She got that on a t-shirt. That should be our first Curiosity Rap merch. Anxiety poop may be related to your nervous system. Look, it absolutely may be related to your nervous system. Um, But yeah. Those those are our best theories. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about that you haven't yet? Um, I, I kind of wanted to talk to uh, like current treatments for anxiety yeah. disorders. Yeah. Go. Um, like just because I feel like a lot of people flexible with times. So. Okay, cool. Just because like I yeah I feel like that's a thing that people are like oh there's like anti anxiety treatments like why why are so many people still so anxious all the time and like. Yeah, please tell me. You know, why why, why aren't they working for everyone? <laughs> why am basically? I anxiety? Why, yes, why don't anxiety, why don't SSRIs work for me? So, basically, the most common drug to treat anxiety is called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And basically all that means is serotonin up. <laughs> more serotonin. <laughs> Give you more serotonin. That's all it does, right? Yep. The problem is, is that serotonin and their receptors, which is what they bind to, to have their effect, they're everywhere. They're mm. all over the brain mm. and they're in your gut. Yeah. Too. Also all over, the all over the body, body which we, we've right? recently so, learned from recent episodes, which we have learned. Serotonin does yeah. fucking everything, which is fun. Yeah. Mm. 
It is. It is a very promiscuous Im- yes. oh, neurotransmitter. True. It is a promiscuous neurotransmitter. It's like eighteen receptors or something. Mm. It really puts the whore um, in hormone. <laughs> it's not a hormone. It's though. not a hormone. <laughs> yeah, but that like, was that funny. Was a good joke. That was funny though. Yeah, great, so it's worth the nothing, scientific inaccuracy. Not, it, Come on, rule of cool, guys. <laughs> no, yeah, like nothing. Like nothing funny really rhymes with transmitter. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, if the drug is working on all the serotonin in the brain. It's not very specific, right? Mm. Um, so one of the good effects of elevating serotonin levels in the brain is that you do get an improvement in mood, which is often enough to kind of sidetrack the physical symptoms you get with an anxiety disorder and allow you to think a bit more clearly, mm. right? But as I mentioned before, the problem is often the other way around. It's not the mood that's the problem. It is the learning about mm. the event. Is which the leads to which the leads mood. to the mood, which perpetuates the learning problem. Treating the symptom nice... and not the cause. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. And exactly. So the problem with, you know, uh, common anxiety treatments is that it is exactly that. It's, it's treating the symptom and not the underlying cause, which is the learning issue. Mm. Um, and that's where psychological therapies would be more... Exactly. And so that's why um, therapy is often quite effective um, for people with anxiety disorders. However, mm. the problem is, is that you have the inverse problem in therapy where sometimes the overwhelming feeling of anxiety and dread can be that intense that you can't actively engage in the therapy mm. because yeah. you can't think. Yeah. So you've got this, you know, when you're in that like peak, peak panic, like I couldn't tell you what I'm like, you exactly, know, yeah. if I have a panic attack, people are just like, like, what are you, what are you panicking about? Yeah. And it's mm. like, I've I got no yeah, idea. No, no All clue. I can tell you is that I can't breathe. My heart's going real fast. Like coughing or like sneezing. You're, you're not um, actively thinking about coughing. If you swallow yeah, some water happened. down the wrong way, your mm. body takes over and it's like, I need this water out so I don't die. So a panic attack is your body mm. being like. I need to do something because I feel like I'm about to die. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, you can't sit there and be like, okay, well, let's rationally think about the fact that I'm not in danger mm. right now. Like that kind of requires you to know what triggered the attack mm-hmm. so you can then, mm-hmm. you know, think about that mm-hmm. particular trigger and rationalize your way mm-hmm. out of that mm-hmm. being a threat. But if, you, if you've got no idea what's triggered it, then it becomes very hard. Or if very you're, difficult. you know, in the middle of it mm-hmm. and you can't, brain like yeah it eventually becomes uh, at least in my experience um sometimes you forget about what exactly triggered the anxiety response and then mm. you end up getting anxious about being anxious oh yes the meta anxiety the meta anxiety <laughs> feedback loop god damn it is a, it is a massive feedback loop and it just takes you know something to kind of break it where you kind of just get out of that mm. that loop mm. to fix it but my whole point is that with anxiety treatments is that you're you're kind of attenuating one part of that loop, whereas you know the the feeling of anxiety, but you're not dealing with the actual core problem mm, of the anxiety. Underlying. So, yeah. what the treatments that we're looking at is: can we find drugs that affect a relatively smaller portion of the brain, rather than you know serotonin, which is mm. everywhere, um, which is more targeted at maybe learning that something that isn't scary is mm. in fact not scary or learning that something that 
is no longer relevant to be scared about is no longer scary. Mm. Yeah. Something so that medication improves... that actually targets the underlying biological mechanisms that are driving this maladaptive exactly. feeling behavior, blah, yeah, blah, blah, okay. rather than just masking the kind of symptoms with a mood boost. Exactly. And that's why a lot of people don't respond really well to those SSRIs, the mm. serotonin mm. inhibitors, because they still think the same way as they used to, but mm. with less heartbeat go fast mm. right like it's just anxiety it's but gonna slower. come basically mm. yeah basically anxiety but with slightly different physiological symptoms exactly but... and so that's why it's been so difficult to come up with you know effective treatments yeah um, we can do it in mice and rats because we can inject directly into their brain and and deliver really yeah, specific we things but we can't do that yeah because i guess for us we need to figure out a way to get a chemical to that point in the brain where it has to either mm. go through like the digestive system or your mucous membrane or your yeah. lungs or whatever not, like yeah not the many way, outside the of ways, yeah insulin there's not many prescription things that we inject directly into ourselves let alone exactly. the brain but even if we injected something directly you know into our bloodstream or whatever it's still got across the blood brain barrier yeah. and then once it's in the brain it's still in the whole brain right yeah. and so it's got to find its you know, way to the right spot potentially what we can do yeah. in animals is we we can it's actually fantastic there's something i call it the ratless the ratless <laughs> Um, and it's essentially yeah. an atlas of rat brain regions mm. and we get coordinates for those regions so that we can actually inject or sorry, insert cannulas into specific brain what regions. What is the cannula? So we're delivering like a, a, a little tiny tube little tube that tiny goes tube. straight okay. into the brain region. So you can micro inject a very, 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 very small dose mm. of a drug straight into a specific clump of cells that we call a brain region yeah right and just affect that brain region mm. which is like allows us to learn so much in animals but doesn't have that direct therapeutic you know translationally yeah. effect right so if you like if you see an article that's like x drug affects this mood thing in mice doesn't mean that you can take x drug and that'll do it for you because it's probably a very well, different way it was administered compared to i mean but even if it was even if it was just swallowed by the mm. mouse that specific drug isn't mm. necessarily going to be effective in humans like a very mm. specific example yeah. from my research is we found a compound a drug that works really well at binding to one receptor type, very, very specific receptor mm. subtype, the M4 muscarinic receptor for my nerds out there that want to know, um, you know, in, in a rat, which is great, but that same drug, if we gave it to a human, it wouldn't bind to the human M4 receptor mm. because they're slightly different in shape. So we need to develop a new, like this is where pharmacological drug discovery comes in. We need mm. to, you know, synthesize a brand new compound to fit that lock and key mechanism of the human version of the receptor, which is slightly different. It's analogous enough for us to make inferences about what it, you know, says about human brains, yeah. but not enough for it to like be a straight, you know, I feel like we would have a much more successful pipeline of preclinical to clinical oh, research if, if we had enough similarity, but alas. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's all <laughs> part of the process of learning and we love it, right? Yes. Scientific inquiry. <laughs> Such fun. On the forefront of discovery. <laughs> yes. Um, so we tell ourselves every day. <laughs> Keep uh, us going. Absolutely. <laughs> repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. I'm contributing to society. This is worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Are we, are we, is that a wrap on fear? I think so. 
Yeah. Mm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. I'm happy awesome. with that. Well, time to shuffle along to our listener question, which, you know, first time listeners to the show, uh, every episode we tackle a listener question that has been emailed into us by one of our listeners. And if you have, you know, a burning question that you don't want to Google for yourself and you would like to hear me give a go at answering instead, you can email us at curiosityrat at gmail.com. And today's season three opener listener question uh, was sent in from Mark. And it says, what are those little do not eat packets that come with everything? Is it the same (laughs) stuff that comes with shoes, food and medication? What do they do? And what would happen if I ate one? It's pretty sure it's to keep (laughs) moisture out of shit, right? Yeah, absolutely. I have no idea how it works because it's like it's still in a plastic packet. So I don't know how whatever's inside is meant to suck moisture out. How's it going to get through the plastic? But that's all I know about it. In a plastic packet, it's in a specialized packet. But yeah, Mm. no, exactly. That's exactly what it does. It Mm. removes moisture. So that's why like and yes, it's it's the same shit that comes with, you know, some leather shoes, you know, a bag of jerky or Mm. a vitamin container like all these different you know things it's essentially it's what we call silica gel or silicon dioxide so that's one silicon with two little oxygen atoms Mm. um attached to it and you may recognize silicon dioxide as being just like one of the most fucking common things ever it's what Sand is mostly silicon dioxide. Mm. Uh, quartz is the crystal form of it. A lot of glass is made using it. Like it's, you know, it's it's very because silicon and oxygen are both very abundant um, yeah. in our you know world. Um, and so essentially, yeah, these these little packets contain these little hard beads. If you've ever mm. opened one up, they're like little kind of glass almost right same same stuff essentially beads um but they're not quite glass because they're they're made with this like really crazy clever process that uses an acid and sodium silicate and it creates these little beads that are full of little pores like all over so there's a massive surface area that's the important thing to know tiny tiny little ball massive surface area full of these like microscopic little holes and it works like to draw in moisture by something called adsorption, not absorption, ad with a D. Interesting. This is a new word. I love new words. What does it mean? Mm. So sending me back to like year 12 chem and I've forgotten it all. Yeah, yeah. So absorption, the one that we are most familiar with, right, Um, involves essentially a material or or the, the water or whatever it is being incorporated into the material itself, like drawn into the cell or drawn mm. into the sponge or drawn in. Adsorption is where it, it, it comes from like adhesion, right? The, the water molecules mm. or whatever you're trying to adsorb adheres to the surface, which is why we want these beads to have like a massive mm. ass surface area, right? Because it, the little water molecules and moisture bits mm adhere to the surface and like these things are so crazy that they can hold like 30 to 40 percent of their weight in water and still remain dry to the touch damn like it's absolutely whack like it's yeah it's something called a desiccant which is yeah essentially for removing moisture so anything that could get moldy or anything that could Mm. be damaged by moisture um so it's often used in like electronics 
And actually, I wrote down some of the like history of it because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, when did we start like using first... this shit? When did we discover that this weird yeah, crystal had this quality? So there's kind of evidence that silica gel as a like substance has been around since about the 1600s, but okay. it wasn't utilized or put to use until 1919, where Mr. Walter Patrick, who was a uh, chemistry professor, mm-hmm. um, decided to patent this silica gel stuff and then joined forces with a company and started selling it as people do, yes, do. Mm-hmm. Um, when you patent things and want to make money. And so in like 1923... Uh, is when it started being sold, but it didn't really take off in popularity until about World War II. And then in World War II, they figured out that it could be like really, really useful in so many situations for controlling Mm. moisture and humidity in terms of keeping medicine dry, military equipment, supplies, Mm. all of that sort of stuff. And they were like, hey, this is actually hella Mm. useful. And, you know, we use it in so many situations Mm. in, um, you know, real life like i said leather products vitamins electronics it's even used in museums and libraries to guard against like rust or corrosion or tarnishing Mm. or you know to stop things fogging up like it's it's basically like sand like you know when you get sand wet and it kind of just feels like the sand has all of the water is just stuck to the outside of yeah. the sand and the sand has like... Is that because it literally the has? The sand hasn't actually absorbed it. Yeah, because it can't go into... But the sand has definitely drawn the, the water structure. into it. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Um, so it's like that, but with more surface area and therefore more effective, um, which is really cool. Did you research any of the... What is actually happening molecularly? Why does this silicon dioxide molecule attract water molecules and why do they stick so well? Mm. Do you know what's going on molecularly? No, that's That's a really good question. Um, It's probably to do with, you know, water being a polar molecule, as we've talked about before, where there's like Mm. a slightly negative charge on one end and a slightly positive charge on the other end. And so water behaves in some really whack ways. Like it Mm. does some really cool stuff as, as a, you know, liquid that, that Mm. other liquids don't do because of this really cool, slightly Mm. charged property. And so my gut feel based on the fact that we've got one silicon and two oxygen um, units, right? So, SiO2 and then H2O. Um, We've got a charge imbalance happening here where they are attracted to each other Mm. on some level um, based on the displacement of electrons. Yeah, okay. Um, And because, you know, it's a hard substance it's not absorbing it in yeah it's not creating a new molecule it's not it's not changing chemically or changing shape a new you know it's not permeable they're not reacting to each other crossing any boundaries no it's just literally sticking together by some charge mechanism yeah okay Um, that that makes sense yeah that makes sense to me Mm. okay so the big important question Mm. What happens if you do eat it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the forbidden I'm sugar. Sure I've seen somewhere online that mm. like people have tried this out and it's not that big a deal. Is that yeah. It's like eating yeah. sand, so right? Pretty... Like you shouldn't eat sand. Yeah. You should, well, yeah, pretty much, right? So it's not toxic and it's mm. not, it's chemically like not reactive, right? Yeah. So it's not going to poison you. That is not mm. the issue here. 
you may experience some discomfort if you, especially if you have large amounts of it, you can eat like one or two or whatever and have kind of no ill effects. But Not that we condone it's, that. It's drawing moisture in, right? So if you're holding it in your mouth for an extended period of time, you kind of just yeah, do it and swallow dry. it. But you know, yeah, it'll, you, yeah. it'll absorb or adsorb, sorry, all of the mm. moisture from your mouth or maybe your throat as it goes down, right? And that might be unpleasant, especially in very large quantities. The other kind of like, asterisk maybe still don't eat it even if it doesn't seem that bad is like you don't know the lifespan of this thing and where it has been mm -hmm. and you don't know if some of the moisture that it has already adsorbed and is already like stuck to it was maybe something toxic right yeah. like you don't know what vapors it's been exposed mm -hmm. to and you may like the the stuff itself the silica gel itself is not toxic but that doesn't mean that you're not ingesting something yeah. toxic um, and especially some of them, so they, some of them actually have this toxic coating. So they're, they're these color changing ones so that when they reach their point of saturation, mm -hmm. AKA no more water can attach, mm -hmm. they change color. So they're covered in something called cobalt chloride, which absolutely is toxic. Mm -hmm. Um, but it makes them blue when they're dry. And then when they're saturated with water, they turn pink because then you can actually like undo it by heating them up for a couple of hours. Oh, because that would just evaporate all the water, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you you have ones um, that are reusable mm. in that sense um, or have that indicator to be like, okay, well, you can't use it anymore. Throw it out. It's mm. turned pink. Don't eat those ones. Absolutely do not. Um, <laughs> but don't eat any of them. But also just don't eat any of just them. Don't. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. You don't know what is stuck to that thing. Um, like... You know, yeah, you can, there are YouTube videos I did look of people eating them. I was about to say, right? um, I don't know if you know, but Chubby Emu, have you seen his YouTube videos? No. So he's, he's a physician, mm. um, that has like case study stories about people presenting to the emergency room with yeah, like wow. weird, wacky stories. So mm. like a common theme is like someone eating a lot of gas station mm. sushi, um, and like them having food poisoning. But basically there was this one episode where someone was like testing out the whole do not eat, you know, mm. silica gel. And it was like, you can't tell me what to do. So just <laughs> ate like a whole bunch of mm -hmm. silica gel and mm -hmm. there was some them. issue with it. But um, I do recommend watching that channel if you're interested in yeah, weird, we'll, wacky... Yeah, we'll uh, find a link and chuck it in weird, the description. Weird, wacky Sounds ED fun. stories. Yeah, if we I do if, remember a silica gel episode. If we yeah. can find that silica gel episode specifically, yeah. we'll chuck yeah. that down in the yeah, no, description. Cool. Um, yeah, so Mark, I hope that more or less answers your question. Yes, it's the same shit in with your shoes and your meds and your food. Um, and it's to keep the moisture out and please don't eat, um, <laughs> you know, or if you do, it. don't blame us. Um, <laughs> and so that's all I've got for the listener question. So mm. with that, I think that brings us to the end of this very awesome first episode back for Woo season three. Yeah. Um, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a hoot. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, I've always wanted to be on it since you were yeah, pestering me last time. Yeah, there we go. Time. So it's not just my pestering. No, you but like I always wanted to be on it, so you I was keen. keen. I was keen. I will admit. Uh, I will admit. You were keen and you were fantastic. <laughs> and you. I'm sure our listeners will agree. So if our listeners want to find more of you, more of what you have to say, more about what you do... Where can they find you? Uh, well, I have an academic Twitter account. Um, I don't post much at the moment, but I'm trying my best yeah. whenever <laughs> something comes up. So uh, my handle is Brandon K R Nero. 
Um, we'll I sh- probably link... should have made it shorter. I but, mean, we'll know. link it in the description as well. So if you want to scroll down and find it, um, Brandon's handle will be down in the description. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram with the handle at Curiosity Rat. You can find us on Facebook, Curiosity Killed the Rat. Shoot us your listener questions, curiosityrat at gmail.com. All of that. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. And before we go, just a quick note on season three. You may be used to getting an episode from us every two weeks. Hate to break the sad news, but it will be coming out just once a month this season. But have no fear. Each episode will be primo and you will enjoy every last minute. So episodes now dropping at the end of each month. We will see you in a month's time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming on today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to our listeners. See you all next time. Bye. Catch you. I'm sorry. I'm still just. You're sorry? Give me a moment. (laughs) I'm recovering from you. Um, Classic. I've heard that before. (laughs) You've got to cut all of this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am too tired for this sort of Oh, we back. Oh, we're back, baby. Mm.